Okay. Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians. It's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good to see you all. Thanks for being with us today. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I, I don't think this statement is too risky. My guess is that everybody in this room, um, save maybe an infant or two, I don't know if there are any infants, but maybe they would be excluded from this group, but my guess is that everybody in this room has felt the sting of betrayal, has been sinned against, falsely accused, lied about, or hurt in some other way at the hands of another human being. Of course, not all hurt experienced in this way is equal in devastation, but harm from other humans is unavoidable. The question is not how do we avoid that inevitability, but as followers of Jesus, how do we respond to such hurt? That is a complex question, uh, one that certainly deserves a multifaceted response and cannot be adequately responded to in a short sermon, but I think a part of that response to the normal hurt we experience at the hands of other human beings must be a willingness to wrestle with the practice of forgiveness. So today we're going to read a parable from Jesus where he explores this and using an image of a huge debt being forgiven, he invites his followers into a life of forgiveness. As we consider the forgiveness of God, we are reminded that forgiveness is not only an occasion for great joy, but also a call into action. So we took a break over the past couple of weeks for our baptism, and then last week Austin taught for us. We took a break from Matthew chapter 18. I want to return to that chapter one more week to wrap up this um, time considering that very simple but complicated question, how do we live at peace together over the long haul? The first two steps we considered were honesty and listening. Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, go to them, confront, bring it out into the open. So honesty, we want to be a truthful people. And then listening, we want to learn how to listen well, seeking to understand and even open, opening ourselves to both counsel and correction. Well, today we find an additional principle or an additional practice 
that is necessary for communal life, a, a process that is hopefully leading us into restoration and reconciliation. And that is the practice of forgiveness. So, fair warning, if we felt discomfort at the words of Jesus in the middle part of this chapter, we better buckle up because it does not get easier. On the heels of that teaching about confrontation and how we as communities of faith are to deal with sin in the community, so both honesty and listening, on the heels of that we read this in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Peter comes to Jesus. Look, I, I hear you. You just told us that if the one who sins against me refuses to listen to me and the small group I invite into the situation, if they refuse to listen to the entire community, you've told me what we are to do. We're to treat them as pagans and tax collectors. That sounds pretty nice. So when can I do that? That's what I'm working toward. How long do I have to wait before I can take that action? How many times must I forgive before I can completely write somebody off? So in Jewish thought at the time, there, there was often a limit placed on forgiveness. It differed by rabbi. Some rabbis taught that four was the limit. So if you forgive three times, that fourth time you're sinned against, you are relieved from your responsibility to forgive. So perhaps Peter here is thinking that he's stretching that limit to its extreme. I mean, should I as men, uh, forgive as many as seven times? Sh surely not. That's absurd. But, but what's the specific number? Is it six? That still seems pretty high. Five, four, what is the limit? What do you teach us? Jesus says, you're right. Not, not seven times. Verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times 7. The number there is not important. The point, when you have forgiven what seems to be an absurd number of times, keep going. The limit does not exist. I, I don't know about you, but that really grates against the carnal part of me. Personally, I have difficulty wanting to forgive a single premeditated offense. I mean, do you realize what they've done? I don't think you do. So, so Jesus uses a parable now to show that he does, in fact, understand how difficult this is, but still invites us to pursue that path. So we begin reading the parable in verse 23, a parable that describes the nature of his kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Doesn't seem too bad. 10,000 talents. We're not talking here about talents in the sense of skills that I may or may not possess, like I can juggle or I can do a cartwheel or I'm a great cook. Coincidentally, those are, none of those are skills that I, I possess. I, I was never able to do a cartwheel. Never in my life have I done a single cartwheel. You don't need to know that, but when we're not talking about skills, this is a monetary designation. 10,000 talents. Just to put this into perspective, one talent, so 10,000 talents, one talent was roughly the equivalent of 20 years 
of a day laborer's wages. So let that sink in a moment. We're talking about 10,000 talents. One talent is 20 years of work. You don't have to run the numbers to make sure this checks out. Even if we take a very conservative view of the value of a talent, 10,000 talents would have been, it's a huge range, but somewhere between 30 million and 100 million days wages. Think about that. In a lifetime, we might work, I don't know, 10 to 15,000 days. The, the magnitude here is unthinkable. His debt would have taken millions of days of work to pay it off. It's, it's absurd. It's even unrealistic. That, some scholars note that that could have been more money than was in circulation in the entire land at that time. So the hyperbolic nature of this story is driving home an important point, which we'll get to in a moment. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, of course he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Okay. I think he's delusional at that point or, or doesn't understand the magnitude of his debt because it would take him thousands of lifetimes to pay it off, but whatever. And then in a shocking, unexpected turn of events, verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's an unbelievable development. In the story, the practical part of me would say even foolish. I, I mean, of course the master's never going to get everything back, but for goodness sake, implement a payment plan or something, and you could have a steady stream of income forever. Instead, the largest debt you could possibly imagine is forgiven in an instant in its entirety. So you can imagine the, the joy, the gratitude, even the disbelief this servant must feel. It's a beautiful, happy ending to a story that started out so heavy. Except if you've read the rest of the chapter, you know the parable doesn't end there. Verse 28, we'll read through the rest of the parable. It's fairly lengthy. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. So you hear the resonance there. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all, the all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. One of the difficult sayings of Jesus. So upon being forgiven, 
I mean, really, an impossible debt. There's no way he could pay it off. He's forgiven that debt, and he goes out almost immediately and finds a servant who owed him, albeit owed him a tiny, infinitesimal fraction of what the king had just forgiven him. And yet he has that man put in jail. The king, who had recently forgiven the enormous debt, finds out and says, are, are you kidding? I just forgave you a much greater debt. Shouldn't you treat him similarly? And the king puts him in prison until he can pay the entire impossible debt. So in part, this parable is contrasting for us our hesitancy to forgive with God's eagerness to forgive. Our stinginess when it comes to forgiveness with God's limitless forgiveness. It reminds us that in response to receiving forgiveness from God, we are invited to also move in that direction. That, that is one of the main reasons forgiveness is so critical for the people of God. It's because this is how Jesus has treated us, and we have been called into his life. But I want to submit that for us to even hope to begin to be a forgiving people, we must first become a people who remember the great forgiveness we have received. Without remembering that, forgiveness will always elude us. Now, Paul says this in Colossians 2. He says, you were, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So think about the parable that Jesus has just told as we hear the words from St. Paul. You know, we might be able to convince ourselves that we were not really in dire straits. Yes, I received some forgiveness. We all receive some forgiveness, but, I mean, I didn't need nearly as much forgiveness as my neighbor over here. I mean, look at the litany of offenses they committed. Paul, though, quickly dismantles any sort of thinking like that. He says, you, and that, that is all of us, were dead in trespasses. A really bad situation. I was in a really bad situation, we were dead. But God made us alive together with him, forgiving us all our trespasses. Only when we face the severity of our sin is God's grace toward us revealed as the truly and absurdly extravagant gift that it is. The, the absurdity of the king's forgiveness and the story that Jesus tells points us to the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, which is hard to fathom if we have understood the severity of our sin. But as we reflect upon that forgiveness, as we enter into it and accept it freely, of, of course it is a reality that leads us into deep joy and gratitude but we learn in this parable that an outflow of that joy and gratitude is a heart that desires to learn how to go and do likewise. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is what we're taught. We prayed it together a moment ago in the Lord's Prayer, but Jesus teaches that, that in some way we can rob ourselves of God's forgiveness by refusing 
to forgive. So Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And then he says this down in verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is really, at least for me, I don't know about for you, it's really uncomfortable to read. The, the late Catholic Cardinal Francis George once said this, in society everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. How true is that? In the church, much is prohibited, but everything is forgiven. It is uncomfortable. It may even create some dissonance in your mind, but I think the tension we feel, at least that I feel, at the thought of forgiving might be quelled a bit if we remember a few things. We've talked about this at time, multiple times in the past, even earlier this year, but I, I revisit it because I suspect that these barriers that often prevent us from moving into forgiveness are impenetrable if we don't remember a few things about forgiveness. The first one is that forgiveness does not mean that an injury doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it's okay. In fact, I think the way Christ's instruction begins in the middle of this chapter in verse 15 shows that the sin, the offense, actually does matter. It matters quite a lot. In fact, it matters so much that Jesus says, go and confront the person who has sinned against you. Address it, bring it out into the open, and hopefully that person will be encouraged to seek to rectify and seek reconciliation. Pain and harm caused by sin and injustice matters. If we assume that it's, it's okay, it's fine, we can brush it under the rug, it, it doesn't matter all that much. If we assume it doesn't matter, Communities of faith will be overrun with sin and offense because we have trained ourselves to minimize the seriousness of sin. And injustice will spread unchecked. That's not healthy. And I don't think that's at all what God desires as he invites his people into forgiveness. So forgiveness doesn't mean an offense or sin doesn't matter. It doesn't mean justice is unnecessary. In fact, biblically speaking, justice and mercy are intricately connected, almost unintelligible apart from one another. Forgiveness doesn't mean the pain you are experiencing doesn't matter. And, and I think this one is especially important, forgiveness won't necessarily make that pain disappear in an instant. I think that's possible. I think God can work a miracle in your life. But I think oftentimes, at least in my experience, it is very possible that the pain will persist. Forgiveness is not about us learning how to forget the past. Some wounds we experience are so deep that we will never forget them. I think that's just the reality. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but it is 
a process where we are relieved from being dominated or suffocated by a desire for retribution. And then finally, forgiveness doesn't always mean that the relationship is going to return to the exact spot it was before the offense. Maybe it will get there. If it does, it might take a long, long time. Maybe it will never get there. And I think in certain situations, that's okay. Forgiveness does not mean the relationship necessarily returns to the exact way it was in the beginning. Maybe that's just not possible. Maybe it's not healthy. So this sounds like a lot of work, right? What's in it for me? Why should I, in addition to what it's doing for the other person, why should I pursue a life of forgiveness? What, the benefits of forgiveness probably aren't immediately noticeable, but I think we may find years down the road that our souls are much healthier because we learned how to grow in forgiveness. In my experience, forgiveness is very much a journey, one in which I am still on. I have not arrived. And I think that's probably true for most of us. We are learning and trying and practicing forgiveness and maybe oftentimes failing to live into forgiveness. It will take a long time, especially if the severity of the offense is extreme. You may not feel inclined to forgive. You may not feel inclined to even want to forgive. And I get that. I have experienced seasons like that as well. So maybe if you find yourself in that position, maybe an initial step might be simply asking God to birth in you a desire to forgive. Maybe that is the necessary step before you can move into forgiveness. God, help me even want to forgive this person who has sinned against me. We had a conversation in our small group last month about this very topic, and, and I mentioned in relation to this story that oftentimes I'm, I'm convinced that my challenge is not forgiving somebody else for 77 unique offenses. It takes me 77 times to forgive a single offense oftentimes. I wake up and I'm once again invited to do the hard work of learning how to forgive. So my encouragement for us today is, is pretty simple. Don't allow the difficulty, the complexity of forgiveness to prevent you from embracing it, or at least from desiring to move in that direction. It is unquestionably difficult and complex. But don't allow that complexity to prevent you from moving in that direction from desiring it. Henry Nouwen once put it this way. He said, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. He went on, the hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, increasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. The name of love practiced among people who love poorly.
So just for a moment, if we, if we return to the middle part of this chapter, that section we covered last month when dealing with conflict with somebody in the community, somebody who has sinned against us, Jesus says, deal with it privately. If that doesn't work, bring one or two more in. Hopefully they can broker a bit of peace in the situation. If that doesn't work, bring in the whole community. And if none of that works, let that person be as a pagan or tax collector to you. But let's remember how Jesus treats those groups consistently. Jesus is lambasted for having fellowship, for eating meals with those groups. Remember who's writing the gospel that we're reading, Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus says, if, if they don't listen to you, treat them as a tax collector. And here we're reading these words from Matthew, the tax collector. We hope to learn to practice radical forgiveness because that's who Jesus is. He consistently demonstrates that if God has forgiven me, maybe, just maybe, I can begin to move toward forgiveness as well. N.T. Wright said this, every time you accuse somebody else, you accuse yourself. I love this part. Every time you forgive someone else, though, you pass on a drop of water out of the bucketful that God has already given you. Just dropping along just one little drop because my bucket has been filled to overflowing. This, according to Jesus, is a key component of his kingdom ethic that's described in the famous sermon. We give what we have received. We forgive because we have been forgiven. If we're aware of the absurd forgiveness we have received, it becomes more natural than to extend that to others. One final thought, I think like so many practices in the life of faith, it is cumulative in nature. The more we practice this, the more natural it becomes. The more we practice it, the more we want to practice it. Not that we ever arrive, but this is what and who we long to become because we follow Jesus as the model of our lives who is even in this moment extending unbelievable forgiveness to us. Today I invite you to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Receive it with open hands, nothing you can do to earn it. But then don't let that reception end with your joy and gratitude. Accept that call into a life of forgiveness as well. Thanks be to God. Would you stand as we prepare to Come to the table of our Lord. Steve, if you wouldn't mind joining me in serving communion. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Receive these gifts of God freely. I'm going to say a prayer by way of invitation, and then we invite you to the table of our Lord. You can take the elements on your own, and then return to your seat. Again, if you'd like prayer, I'll be in the back in just a few moments. Say a prayer as we prepare to come to the table. Forgiving God. Forgiving God. By the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have reconciled all things to yourself, not counting our sins against us, 
and renewing our hearts to forgive as we have been forgiven. Enable us to live as Jesus lived. Give us grace to make peace that both forgiven and forgiving we may ever be one in Christ who with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?